Welcome to the Pepperell Baptist Podcast, where we seek to equip the church to make disciples of the Lord Jesus among all ages and in all places. So take out your Bible and a pen, and let's jump into the Word together once again. If you've got a copy of God's Word tonight, I invite you to turn with me to the book of Hebrews. Book of Hebrews. Be looking at the last half of chapter 8. I'll read this and begin working through it and hopefully make the best sense out of it we can together and find some ways to apply it to our lives here this evening. Hebrews chapter 8, verses 7 through 13. Let me read it for us to begin with. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion for a second one. But finding fault with his people, he says, See, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their ancestors on the day I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. I showed no concern for them, says the Lord, because they did not continue in my covenant. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts I will be their God, and they will be my people. And each person will not teach his fellow citizen, and each his brother or sister, saying, Know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least to the greatest of them. For I will forgive their wrongdoing, and I will never again remember their sins. By saying a new covenant, He has declared that the first is obsolete. And what is obsolete and growing old is about to pass away. I think almost every class that I took in seminary, regardless of the topic, required at minimum for the course to pass it for me to read a book and write typically a five-page review of the book. As part of the review, we, of course, were required to always summarize the content of the book, outlining the major arguments, identifying the strengths, critiquing, if we dare, any weaknesses that we perceive were in the book or logic or thought. Additionally, they always required us to write a conclusion paragraph in which we explicitly stated if we would recommend the book to another student or if we would not recommend the book to another student and state our reasons why. I never did not not recommend a book, but I thought about it a time or two, particularly when I was reading a book that just felt so distant to me. This was always troubling, specifically if he was reading a book that the professor of the class had written. Would I recommend this book? I want an A, so yes. But I would struggle with it if I was reading a book that I felt was just so distant from me. And by distant, I mean feeling that this is so disconnected from me that it has no relevance for my life. 
or just to be blunt, I felt that the book was a complete waste of my time. There were plenty of books like that, but I remember one book in particular, and I brought it with me here tonight. It was a book by John Hammett titled Biblical Foundations for Baptist Churches, a Contemporary Ecclesiology. I was most irritated when this book was assigned to me at the beginning of the class. I was not happy about it. The title itself almost put me to sleep. Now, I'm not going to say that, that everything in this book was just exhilarating. It wasn't. But before the end of it, I was glad that I had read it. It became a foundational book for my theological understanding of the church because it equipped me to understand that I have good reasons for being in the Baptist denomination. I'm not a Baptist just because my parents were. I have good reasons, and there are good reasons for why I feel and think the way in which I think. There are good reasons for the Baptist way of thinking and believing. And you know, in this really long-titled book that I thought was going to be very boring, that was a turning point for me. The turning point that hooked me in, John Hammett, against all my expectations, enabled me to see the relevance of historical Baptist doctrine for my personal life and practice for my own life. Those oh-so-distant denominational ideals all of a sudden just seemed so up-close and personal to me. So I didn't just read the book. I actually recommended it to other students with a clear mind and a clear conscience. And in a way... I think that's what's happening in this passage that we're looking at tonight. It's a turning point, if we want to call it that, in the argument of the letter. Where the big theological ideas we've been talking about that have been outlined suddenly are brought up close and personal and with the expectation that it will be life-changing for us in our walk with the Lord. You know, up until now, the author has argued that Jesus is better on the basis of realities that are what we might say external to us. Some examples that we see pretty frequently in the book of Hebrews might be said like this, that Jesus is better because He is the divine Son of God. And Jesus is better because He's a perfectly sympathetic high priest. He's an eternal high priest. And because He's entered the true temple in heaven in the very presence of God, all these arguments being made while pointing to the Old Testament priests who were very human, very dying, very weak, and also very sinful. These truths we see about Jesus in the earlier part of Hebrews are, well, we might say, objective realities. They are true independent of us. They are statements about Jesus that are true without any contact with us. Jesus is the divine Son of God whether I'm here or not. My presence doesn't change anything about that. Jesus is the perfect high priest whether I'm involved or not. However, here in this passage we just read, the argument momentarily shifts to focus to highlight how the covenant that Jesus establishes is also better on the basis of realities that we personally experience because of His life, death, and resurrection. These are the better promises that He mentioned at the end of verse 6. So here's how the argument unfolds. First, He points out the reason for why a new covenant was needed. He points out the fault of the first covenant in order to show the need for a new covenant. And then he shows how the new covenant is better on a personal level. How it affects me. How it's relevant for my life. He brings all those distant theological ideas just up close and personable. Here's what this means for you. All while quoting a passage directly from Jeremiah 31. 
So let's break it down and see how it works. Look with me again at verse 7 through 8. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion for a second one. But finding fault with his people, he says. So the first thing he wants to do is to show the reason for why we needed a new covenant to begin with. And it's kind of this question that hangs out at the top of the text. Who or what was faulty about the first covenant that was made with the people of Israel? What was more or less the hole in it? What, what was the fault in it? What was the problem with it? Well, since covenant in this passage, specifically in this passage, is a very major idea, it's probably wise to remind ourselves of the nature and structure of a biblical covenant. It's just not a term that we often use in our world today. Uh, at least I don't. I don't walk around talking about making covenants with people. Uh, it's not something I use in business. It's not something I use in personal life. But it's something I see all the time in the Bible. So what, what is a covenant? What's the nature of it? Well, the nature of the biblical covenant, at least in their design, appear to mirror other ancient Near Eastern covenants, particularly those relationships from the Hittite Empire that featured really these three primary ingredients. In every covenant in the ancient Near Eastern world, there was always what they called a suzerain, which was the Lord, which was the ruler in the relationship. There was always a vassal, which was the subject people, the inferior in the relationship. And you always had some kind of constitutional document, which we might think of as the law, which outlined the relationship, the stipulations of it, the, uh, the expectations of the relationship. Now, it's pretty clear in this passage that the author is saying that the first covenant had a big hole in it. So somebody's at fault. Something's wrong with that covenant. What is it? It's not complete in a way. God was indicating that the covenant he made with Israel after redeeming them from Egypt would not be the final step in redemptive history. He then immediately sets out to identify what the fault was. So let's ask the question, who's the faulty party here? Well, obviously we know intuitively that God was not at fault. God is perfect. God is complete. God is faithful in all that he does. The Lord always follows through, and that's a wonderful truth. So God is not the reason for why the first covenant didn't work out, which only leaves two options, the people or the law. So who is the faulty party, the people or the law? Well, the text tells us in verse 8, doesn't he? But finding fault with his people, he says. I think it's a very important distinction to make because I would not want you to think that God gave them a faulty law. He didn't. God is perfect and all things that he gives are perfect. It wasn't a faulty law. It wasn't the problem of the law. The fault was with his people. Finding fault with his people. Well, what was their fault? Well, we don't have to search very far. He tells us in verse 9, Not like the covenant that I made with their ancestors on the day I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. I showed no concern for them, says the Lord. Why? Because they did not continue in my covenant. The fault was with the people of Israel, and their fault was that they were not holding up their end of the relationship. And if you've read through the Old Testament, you know this. God redeems the people of Israel out of Egypt, out of oppression and bondage, brings them to the Red Sea, parts the Red Sea. They thought they were dead men and women, and God saves them. 
kills Pharaoh and his army, brings the people safely to the other side. And then they come to Mount Sinai where they make the covenant, Exodus chapter 19. God shows up and the world just thunders and erupts and claps of lightning like you can't even imagine. And God makes a covenant relationship with them. And he gives them the law. I am the Lord your God who took you out of the land of Egypt. I bore you up on wings like eagles to make you a holy nation and a kingdom of priests. I will be your God and you will be my people and you will do what I say to do. Except they didn't. Moses stayed up on the mountain just a little too long and the people got impatient. Can you imagine that? I almost want to say they must have been Baptist. <laughs> they got impatient with him. And so what did they do? Well, Aaron, Moses' brother, has the bright idea. Give me all your golden earrings. And I throw them into the fire. Do you know what? Outcome this golden calf. Behold, O Israel, the gods who delivered you from Egypt. They commit an egregious sin against God. Idolatry. Can you believe that? After everything they've just seen, after everything they've just witnessed, not only has God brought them out of Egypt, but He descended on top of Mount Sinai. He made Himself known. He spoke to them from the cloud. They heard the, the, the earth rumble in the voice of God. And they made an idol and worshipped it. And you know, this really just begins just kind of a slippery slope for the rest of the Old Testament. They just never get out of that. They start a habit here, a pattern in Exodus 32 that continues on throughout the entire Old Testament, which eventually leads them into exile. The Babylonians and the Assyrians come and get them because of their idolatry, their unfaithfulness to the Lord. Exodus 32 onward is a constant failure on the part of the people. This covenant could not affect the change that was needed because the people could not hold up their end of the relationship. That was the fault with the first covenant. It wasn't with God. It wasn't with the law. It was with the people. They did not have the ability to hold up their end of the relationship. But this is not the case with the new covenant. We have better promises under Christ. We have better promises under Jesus, what He's accomplished for us. Well, what are the better promises of the new covenant? Well, that's what you see in verses 10 through 12. And this quotation from Jeremiah, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. Talking about the new covenant. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. That's the first promise that makes this better. I don't have to go ask Moses if he can review the stone tablets with me. Y'all with me on this? There, there's a work under the new covenant where the Holy Spirit does something in my heart. Yes, we have the scriptures which tell us how to live. But God is doing something in my heart. He's changing me. He's transforming me. And He is for you too if you're a born-again believer of God. This internal work of the Spirit. You know, Paul has something to say about this as well when he's writing to those rascal Corinthians in the second letter. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 3 begins talking about this. It 
You show that you are Christ's letter delivered by us, not written with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. And then you look down at verse 18. We all with unveiled faces are looking as in a mirror at the glory of the Lord and are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. This is from the Lord who is the Spirit. Brother and sister, there is a real reality. That when you come to corporate worship and the word is proclaimed to you and you sing in the congregation of brothers and sisters or when you're at home before the presence of God on your quiet time on a daily basis interacting with scripture, it is more than a mental exercise. Y'all realize that, right? Like a good sermon is more than, well, that was, that was like some really sharp logic. That was a really good point Zach made. You know how I gauge a good sermon? If my heart has been affected. Then my heart gets affected through my mind. It's not separate. But there's a real reality here that when we're interacting with Scripture, the Holy Spirit is changing us on the inside. He's writing His truth on our hearts. That's a major difference. The people of Israel didn't have that. The indwelling Spirit of God. The other part of verse 10 there, I will be their God, and they will be my people. I think this is the second promise that's better. I will be their God, and they will be my people. You know, that's, an, that's a very frequent phrase in the Old Testament. It's often used to talk about the mutual connection. There are mutual responsibilities there. But as we saw with the Old Covenant, the people didn't hold up their end of the bargain, did they? And so what does the Lord say? He says in verse 9, I showed no concern for them. Says the Lord, why? Because they did not continue in my covenant. Brother and sister, you realize that the Lord is never going to say that about you and I? Isn't that wonderful? We have an unbreakable bond with God because of Christ Jesus. There is nothing, Paul says, that can separate us from the love of Christ. He will be my God and I will be His people forever. There is an unbreakable bond. Nothing changes that. And look at verse 11. And each person will not teach his fellow citizen and each his brother or sister, saying, Know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least to the greatest of them. You know, we've talked about this in the previous weeks. But the Old Testament was kind of restrictive. Meaning that unless you were the high priest... You didn't get to get up close and personal with the presence of God. You were very, very dependent on the Levites, the priests, teaching you the law. But that's not the case with the new covenant. Here's a Baptist belief that come out of this book that just revolutionized my life and how I see the church. It's called the priesthood of every believer. Y'all know that? Very distinct Baptist doctrine, the priesthood of the believers. That the Spirit of God is living in us. He's dwelling in us. As born-again Christians, we have the Spirit of God. Now, I think there's a value, obviously, in a pastor preaching. So don't look at verse 11 and say, ah, we don't need Zach. I think there's value there. 
But there's a real reality. There's a real promise here that you can open the Scriptures for yourself and read it and discern the truth of God. I don't have to spoon feed you, right? Like you, like you can do it. What a wonderful promise that we have. We can know the Lord from the least to the greatest. We're not restricted. We can know the Lord. And then lastly, verse 12, For I will forgive their wrongdoing, and I will never again remember their sins. A forever forgiveness of sin. What a promise. What a promise. This, this hits at this idea we've been kind of looking at, and we're going to see it a whole lot more vividly in the upcoming chapters, of the completeness of the work of Christ, of just how thoroughly the blood of Jesus has cleansed me. That when He died for me and, 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 and His work was applied to my life, it covered my past sins, it covered my present sins, it covered my future sins. I am forever forgiven in Christ. Again, the point to Paul in Romans 8, this is why he says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You are forever forgiven. What a wonderful promise. What a wonderful privilege. And all these big theological ideas we've been looking at, they all lead to these conclusions. You get changed in worship. You get changed in your time with the Lord. He writes His truth on your hearts. You have an unbreakable bond. You are forever forgiven. You can experience and know the presence of God. You're not dependent on someone else to, to mitigate the presence of God to you. What wonderful realities. And here would be the question I would ask you just in closing. With privileges and promises as wonderful, wonderful as these, are you living? Are you living in these privileges that come from these promises? Surely we don't shut our Bibles and say, totally dependent on what Zach tells me. I'm totally dependent on my spiritual growth because of the preacher. Do you open the Word and seek out God's truth? Are you seeking to grow spiritually? Do you live in light of these promises? Are you seizing the privileges that have been won for you in Christ? I hope so. What wonderful promises, what wonderful privileges we have as the children of God because of what Jesus has accomplished on our behalf. We have better promises and therefore a better relationship with the Lord that affects us personally. Let me pray for you. Father, I pray you help us this evening. Lord, as we wrestle and grapple with these difficult passages. Lord, I hope tonight has been a way of a step forward in, in showing how the big ideas you give us and the hard concepts we talk about from everything from Melchizedek to Levitical priesthoods and all these different things, Lord, that, that it has relevance for our lives because it impacts our relationship with you, that you really have done something wonderful beyond human comprehension in your Son. That we have wonderful promises, better promises in which we can experience Your love and Your grace and Your presence as often and as much as we wish and desire. 
Lord, I pray that if nothing else, you would use this sermon tonight, you would use these words and message tonight, Lord, to perhaps stir in the hearts of someone a desire to seek a deeper walk with you. Perhaps for the first time in their life, they realize what wonderful privileges they have because of what Jesus has won for them. And I pray, Lord, that they would seize hold of it. Lord, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your time. Lord, we thank you for your love. And we pray that you would lead us and guide us as we seek to walk closely with you. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. See you on Sunday. Have a great week. Thanks for tuning in. Be sure to catch our sermon series of the Gospel of Mark on Sundays at 11 a.m., either at the church campus or on our Facebook live stream at Pepperell Baptist Church online. Have a great week. Blessings. Thank you.